Before we read scripture this morning, God's holy and errant infallible word, let us turn to the Lord asking his blessing of the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we acknowledge that there is none like you. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. You are the Holy One, high and exalted. As we read your word, we pray that you would draw us up into the splendor of your holiness. Help us to hear your holy word with open hearts that we may truly understand. In understanding, we may believe. In believing, we may put our trust in you, the rock of our salvation. In trusting that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're continuing our sermon series through... Acts. We are in Acts chapter 25. Pastor John preached on the first 12 verses of the 25th chapter of Acts. I'm going to pick up in verse 13 and take us through the end of the chapter, verse 27. Hear now the word of God. It is written. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, that is the king of the Jews, and Bernice, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, They brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. 
but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We pick up this morning with where we left off last Sunday with Paul in Roman custody in Caesarea. And before we get to the matter at hand, though, we really need to do a brief historical overview for the sake of context. So if you remember from last Sunday, Felix, the Roman governor of that region, was in no rush to deal with Paul's case. So he simply left Paul in prison for two years. Felix was eventually replaced by Festus, and when Festus took over this position, he found himself in a pickle concerning Paul. It all began because Felix was taking the safe route at least as it concerned the Jews, by leaving Paul in prison. But Festus had some sense of his obligation to Roman law. He needed, therefore, to do something with Paul. The reason Felix had been in no rush to deal with Paul was that he was compromised in his relationship with Paul's Jewish accusers. We learn in chapter 25, though, that so too was Festus. Luke tells us at different points that each were acting in ways to appease the Jews. We see this in regard to Festus in verse 9 of chapter 25, where we are told that Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, asked Paul about being tried in Jerusalem. Clearly, that would not have worked in Paul's favor. He would not have received a fair trial there. But Festus is trying to wiggle his way out of this mess without upsetting the Jews. So here is the initial conundrum for Festus. He felt some obligation to uphold Roman law, to execute Roman justice, but he also wanted to appease the Jews. So even as he, in a way, defended Paul and sought to offer him a fair trial, Paul wasn't simply going to be acquitted. Festus even acknowledged that Paul was innocent in terms of Roman law. The reality was that Paul's Jewish accusers couldn't prove that he had broken any Roman law for which he should be put to death, but Festus also wasn't about to release Paul. Paul saw what was going on. He saw the favoritism at play, which was why Paul appealed to Caesar. And this gave Festus an out of sorts. It gave Festus a a way to wash his hands of the situation. And we even see him claiming that Paul's continued imprisonment was Paul's own fault since he had appealed to Caesar. Festus acts as though his hands had been tied, as it were, by Paul's appeal to Caesar. Really, really, Festus was trying to absolve himself of any responsibility. 
If Festus had been doing his job, then he would have released Paul by now. And all of this leads to a whole different issue for Festus, which is the heart of the issue in these verses this morning. Festus really couldn't send Paul to Caesar with these charges that hadn't been substantiated. Festus recognized that this issue that the Jews had with Paul was really a matter of dispute over religious doctrine, over theological disagreements. So Festus says so himself in verses 18 and 19, recounting Paul's case. Festus states, when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion. What was Festus to do? The Romans didn't prosecute people for differences of religious beliefs, at least not yet. In a few short years, they would start prosecuting Christians for not bowing to Caesar. They began recognizing that Christians held Jesus to be Lord, not Caesar. For the time being, though, Christians were lumped in with the Jews who had special religious exemptions under Roman law. And this is why here, in this instance, the Jews tried to accuse Paul of other things that were punishable under Roman law. The only problem was that the Jewish accusers didn't have any witnesses to substantiate these claims. So now Festus is caught between a rock and a hard place, between upsetting the Jews by releasing Paul and sending Paul to Caesar with no legitimate charges. Both of these things could sink his career. His predecessor, Felix, had been removed from office for not handling an issue with the Jews wisely. The Jews consequently sent a letter to Rome concerning him, which led to his removal. Festus wasn't trying to repeat the same mistake. But he also definitely didn't want to send a prisoner to Caesar with no prosecutable charges. This is why Festus was in a pickle concerning Paul. Festus must have been relieved then when Agrippa II, who was the current Jewish king of the region, showed up. Just for context, Agrippa II would be the last ruler of the Herodian dynasty that we heard about this morning in Sunday school. His father was Herod Agrippa I. Do you remember him? He was the one who had Peter arrested and James, the brother of John, put to death back in Acts 12. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great the same Herod who ordered the infanticide in Matthew 2 in an attempt to kill the Christ child. His great uncle, Herod Antipas, was the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded and who was a part of Jesus' trial in Luke 23. So this should give you a little perspective about Agrippa II. His family didn't exactly have the best track record with Jesus and his followers. Anyhow, Agrippa II and his sister, Bernice, with whom he was having an incestuous affair, had shown up to pay respect 
to Festus as the new Judean governor. We need to see what's happening here. Agrippa is playing politics, trying to get in tight with the new Roman official. But his arrival in verse 13 provided Festus an opportunity to formulate charges against Paul, of which Festus was keenly aware he was utterly incompetent about. Agrippa, on the other hand, was very knowledgeable about Jewish beliefs. In fact, Agrippa had been charged by Caesar with the responsibility for the temple in Jerusalem, which included appointing the high priest. He really was acting as the king of the Jews. So Agrippa had knowledge and power from a Jewish perspective and was also a supporter of Rome and interested in Roman affairs. Festus knew then that Agrippa's knowledge of Judaism and his good standing in Rome would be helpful in compiling a report concerning Paul to send to Caesar. By the way, these reports were not optional. Without this report, Festus knew that his competence as a judge and provincial administrator would be called into question. He really needed Agrippa's help. So during Agrippa's stay with him, Festus laid out Paul's case and Agrippa took the bait, telling Festus that he would like to hear Paul himself. Now that was a very long introduction, but all of this provides the background for what's going on in these verses in chapter 25. It sets the scene for Paul's defense before Agrippa in chapter 26. This is the longest and most theologically explicit of any of Paul's defenses as recorded in Acts by Luke. And Luke is certainly using these verses to draw our attention to this defense. It is a big deal in the book of Acts. It is climactic in, in many respects, and we're going to get it into this defense in detail next Sunday. For this morning, though, we have plenty to focus our attention on in these verses. In particular, I want us to focus in on what Festus says concerning this case being a matter of religious dispute and what it reveals about his attitude concerning Jesus. I also want to focus in on how Luke portrays both Festus and Agrippa in contrast to Paul. Luke's portrayal of these men is tied intimately to their attitudes concerning Jesus. And what we're doing here is we're going to draw out through these two focal points in these verses concerning what we ourselves do with the person of Jesus. Will we make much of him or will we make little of him? So first, let's look at what Festus says about this dispute between the Jews and Paul. We've already noted that Festus recognized that this was a matter of disagreement over religion. More specifically, though, it's a matter of disagreement over Jesus, especially his resurrection from the dead. In verse 19, Festus states that these disputes are about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And to some degree, Paul had been stressing that this 
was at the heart of the matter all along, right? He had been saying that the reason the Jews were after him was a matter of his belief in the resurrection from the dead. He said the same thing in his trial before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23, as well as in his trial before Felix in chapter 24. Here in chapter 25, though, Paul made it explicit that his hope in the resurrection from the dead was based on Jesus, in whom the resurrection hope of Israel was fulfilled. And we're going to see next week how Paul lays this out in detail in his defense. But he has apparently already done that here with Festus, who is making mention of it as he lays out the case for Agrippa. The issue here wasn't a belief in the resurrection in general, but in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in particular. That is the central point of contention. Now, in one respect, Festus was correct in his assessment that he was not the one who should be making any decisions about theological issues. The state, the government, should never be making decisions about theological doctrine. That is not what God ordained the government to do. And Festus admitted that he was utterly incompetent in this matter, so at least he recognized that. But there is something far more fundamental here. Ultimately, Festus must make a decision concerning Jesus Christ. He was personally being confronted with the truth about Jesus. This was Paul's aim. Paul wasn't trying to change Roman law. He was trying to change human hearts. He was seeking to confront everyone he encountered with the objective historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus. It isn't just at the heart of the Christian faith. It was also Paul's starting point to challenge people to consider the saving work of Jesus. The resurrection was well attested. The question was and is, what are you as an individual going to do with it? What are you going to do with the objective historical reality of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the tomb? Are you going to deny it and thus deny all the evidence? Or are you going to believe it and submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus? This is what Paul wanted people to be confronted with. The reality was that Paul wanted people to know Jesus as he knew him. He wanted them to make much of the Lord Jesus. So he committed himself, as he told to the Corinthians, to knowing nothing but Christ in him crucified, to preaching Christ in him crucified. This obviously included to Festus. Notice how Festus speaks of Jesus, though. He refers to Jesus as a certain Jesus who was dead. Paul had no doubt told Festus about this man, Jesus, who had defeated death. And what was Festus's response? He referred to Jesus as a certain Jesus who was dead. 
Does that sound like one who was truly interested in who Jesus was and is? Does that sound like one who was seeking to know the truth about the resurrection? The great Charles Haddon Spurgeon made this observation about Festus's remarks. He mentions the name as belonging to some obscure individual of whom he knew nothing and cared less. Jesus was not some obscure individual, though. His death and resurrection had sent shockwaves through the known world, and it wasn't like Caesarea had been untouched by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus prior to Paul's arrival there. And yet, Festus spoke of Jesus as though Jesus was of no consequence to him. He revealed in just a few words that he didn't care whether or not Jesus was a real man who lived, died, and was raised from the dead. This was a religious dispute that was of no concern for him other than how to move forward with this case. He didn't care whether Jesus was God incarnate who had come down from heaven, become fully human, lived in perfect obedience to the law, offered up his life as a sacrifice for the atonement of sins, had risen from the dead, providing the promise of eternal life to all who place faith in him. He acted as though the saving death of Jesus and his lordship were of no consequence to his life. In fact, all of that was completely incomprehensible to him. According to his worldview, what Paul said of Jesus made no sense. What, what God would take on human flesh? What divine being would take on the sins of his creatures? What king would become a servant and willingly die for his people? It was all nonsense. Think about how it sounded to a man like Festus. Can you imagine it? The, the line of questioning before Paul. Let me get this straight, Paul. You acknowledge that Jesus died. Yes. And not just that, he died a criminal's death. Yes. And you claim that he was divine? Yes. Okay. And you think that Jesus died a cursed death for those who were his enemies? Yes. And you claim that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. And somehow his death grants you forgiveness of sins and his resurrection provides you the promise of eternal life? Yes. Right. Paul was not ashamed to proclaim these truths, though. He, he gloried in them. He gloried in the saving death of Jesus. But, but Festus, Festus was too cultured to believe such a thing. Festus was too learned to hold to such foolishness. He wasn't trying to investigate the truth about Jesus. In verse 20, he stated, I, I'm at a loss for how to investigate these things. But he really wasn't trying to investigate them. He just needed to know what to write down on a letter to Caesar concerning Paul so that he could be done with this whole matter. That was his real motivation for listening to Paul. Festus made little of Jesus. Jesus was just an obscure dead man to him.
But Paul made much of Jesus. Paul made much of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He made much of the implications of these realities. Paul understood that the hinge of humanity's relationship with God turned on the person and work of Jesus Christ, not just for the Jews, for everyone, everywhere, in all ages. This is why Paul had gone to both Jew and Gentile boldly proclaiming the truth of Jesus. And if Jesus had been raised from the dead, then it meant that all of his ministry had been vindicated. That he really was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That he really was the once for all sacrifice for sin. That he really served as a means to solve the age-old problem of our sin in enmity with God. That he really was God in the flesh. That if we wanted to know God, then we must look to Jesus. If we wanted to be right with God, then we must look to Jesus. He was and is the only way to God the Father. And it meant that death had been defeated. And it meant that those who place faith in him would have victory with him and in him. Paul knew these things to be true because he encountered the resurrected Jesus. He had tasted and seen the goodness of God in Christ. He had received the Holy Spirit and knew what it was, it, it was to be forgiven and, and raised to newness of life. And Paul made it his life's purpose to magnify Jesus because he knew Jesus to be worthy of all of his worship. But not just his, but the worship of all people. So Paul invited others to make much of Jesus with him. He, he wanted others to join him in exalting Jesus as Lord and Savior. He wanted others to find in Jesus a source of righteousness and peace and joy. He, he wanted others to experience the forgiveness and love of God in Jesus. He wanted others to know Jesus as he knew him as the chief treasure. And Paul was so committed to this that he was willing to suffer for the sake of telling others about Jesus, regardless of the cost. Regardless of the cost, whether it meant being slandered, being beaten, being imprisoned, even put to death, Paul counted it a great privilege to suffer for the sake of exalting Christ. Paul made much of Jesus, even as those around him treated Jesus flippantly and despised him. So dearly beloved, how about you? Do you act as though Jesus is simply some obscure dead man? Whether you say you believe him or not, do you make much of Jesus? What evidence is there in your life? Have you committed yourself to knowing him because you understand him to be your chief treasure? Have you committed to worshiping him? Have you committed yourself to his word? Have you committed yourself to growing in his grace? Have you committed yourself to his service? Have you committed yourself to his people? Have you committed yourself to sharing him with others? Have you committed to making every aspect of your life a living sacrifice before him? Have you made much of Jesus in your life? These are the things that tell us if we hold Jesus to be precious or not. 
They tell us whether we practically are acting as though Jesus is just some obscure dead man or if Jesus is the living, reigning Lord. There is no taking a neutral attitude toward Jesus. We either make much of him or we make little of him. We either boast in him or we are ashamed of him. We either glory in his death and resurrection or we glory in other things. This is exactly what Luke shows us here in this passage. This is the second thing we need to see here. We see a portrayal of those on both sides of the issue presenting us with a picture of what life looks like when Jesus is despised and disregarded and what life looks like when Jesus is treasured. It's very revealing. We've already observed that Jesus was simply an obscure dead man who was of no concern to Festus. But Luke, what does Luke show us about what was of concern to Festus? You see, something will be exalted in our lives. So what was it? Well, there there was concern with Festus of keeping and increasing his power. What was of concern was his popularity among the Jews. What was of concern was his prominence in the empire. What was of concern to him was his approval before Caesar. He found identity in these things, and he bent his life around them. He cared about everyone's opinion about him, but the opinion of the one who mattered the most mattered not to him. Look at Agrippa. He agreed to hear Paul's case. Why? Because he was interested in what Paul had to say? Because he had an open mind concerning Jesus, was interested about hearing him? Maybe. But his response to Paul's defense in chapter 26 seems to suggest otherwise. More than likely, it's because Festus played to his ego. David Peterson, a biblical commentator, identifies this for us clearly. He states, for the Jewish king, there is the reward of political flattery and deference. The Romans recognized his importance. This is what really did it for him, wasn't it? He liked being called on by a Roman official to help, right? Because it feels good. It feels good when someone of importance defers to us. The ironic thing here is that he unwittingly ended up playing the same role with Paul as his great uncle played with Jesus. Look what else Luke reveals here about Agrippa. Luke tells us in verse 23 that Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And Luke is clearly painting that picture for us here. A great deal of pageantry on display here as they paraded into the auditorium where Paul was to be tried. Following Agrippa and Bernice came the high-ranking officers. They were the tribunes, the officers over a cohort of a thousand soldiers. After them came the notables of the city, the leading figures of Caesarea. These were the people Festus had assembled to help him with the case. Those who held high positions of power and prominence in the city and beyond. But Luke indicated from the outset what was really happening. You see the Greek word for pomp is fantasia, fantasia. 
You recognize this word because it's where we get our word fantasy. This is what Luke is pointing us to. These people who sit in judgment of Paul are all chasing after the things of this world. They're all seeking to make names for themselves. They're all about worldly prominence and prestige. They're all about worldly power and popularity. They're all about building up their own little kingdoms. They're all about making much of themselves. It's perhaps noteworthy that Luke draws our attention to Bernice's presence with Agrippa. All of this outward show, there was inward rot and decay. Their little kingdoms would be judged harshly in the end and would come crashing down in time. None of these people were interested in pursuing Christ. They didn't want to know Christ and him crucified. They were pursuing their own glory. And they all came parading in before Paul, who was then brought in. Can you imagine the scene? Luke wants us to see what's happening here. All of this worldly wealth and power, but the freest Man in the room is the one in chains. The richest man in the room is the one in a prisoner's tunic. The most powerful man in the room came in the appearance of weakness. This is what Luke wants us to see. He wants us to see the trappings of chasing after the world, of making much of the world and little of Jesus. It's so easy to be concerned with meaningless things, with things that are fleeting and fading, to to set our eyes on the physical world rather than the eternal things in Jesus Christ. This was the case for Festus and Agrippa, who were both concerned with their own prominence before men rather than their standing before God. Neither one of them thought much of Jesus Christ. He was not worth their time or energy. Jesus couldn't bring them worldly wealth or power or prominence or pleasures. They were too busy chasing after things that would not last. Dearly beloved, this is a sad picture for many. All the pomp and pageantry, and it's all fantasy. Make-believe. Doesn't last. And worse, God brings his wrath against it and destroys it because it lives in rebellion against him. It mocks him and his grace in Jesus Christ. But on this side of eternity, those who make much of Jesus might very well end up looking an awful lot like the apostle Paul. Despised, rejected, falsely accused. When we make much of Jesus, this is a very real possibility. We get treated like Jesus because we identify ourselves with him. The question for us is, is he worth it? So how about you? What are you chasing after today? You chasing after fantasy? of power, of pleasure, of worldly possessions, of self-importance? Are you just making much of yourself? Are you trying to build your own little kingdom? Or are you seeking to make much of Jesus Christ? Are you seeking to build his kingdom? And we can say that we love the Lord. We can say that we believe in Jesus, but our heart's desires eventually get exposed. 
today you are confronted with the same truth as confronted Festus and Agrippa almost 2,000 years ago. Dearly beloved, Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. And Jesus will come again. What are you going to do with that reality? Are you pursuing him? Are you chasing after him? Are you longing after his return as Queen Elizabeth was? She famously said that she hoped Jesus would return in her lifetime in order that she could place her crown at his feet. He is the one who is truly worthy of all of our praise, all of the glory. Do you make much of him? Or are you chasing after the wind? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, we have love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise. He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. Heavenly Father, help us to make much of Jesus, to make much of his death and his resurrection, to make much of him in every aspect of our lives, to turn from worldly things that are fleeting and fading and turn to Jesus Christ in whom we have promises that will never fade, will never fail, kept in heaven for us, guarded for us by you. So, Lord, turn our affections to him. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using Heidelberg Catechism number one. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong body and soul in life Yeah.